This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, this weekend, the movies that have been released on this very weekend feel as though they have been created in a lab specifically for me. (laughs) It's alive, the strange melding of two disparate elements into one shambling hole is here. Barbenheimer. Oh no, Kevin, I'm so sorry, but... You're thinking of Barbenheimer's monster. Barbenheimer was the doctor which oh, created this weekend. Of course. Silly me. Listeners, please forgive my faux pas there. We are going to be talking about Barbenheimer's monster. Now, we're just going to be talking about two movies that are their own things. We're looking forward to both of them. First up, we're going to be talking about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. And then we'll be following that up with Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Yeah, it's a double feature for the ages on episode 391 of Seeing and Believing. We imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it until they understand it. And they won't understand it until they've used it. Theory will take you only so far. listeners, we are here on episode 391 of Seeing and Believing. And careful listeners to last week's episode will remember that we said that this week we were going to be covering Oppenheimer and Patton as part of the watch list. And at the last minute, we were able to swap out one movie about a serious general going on a war (laughs) for another one. So instead of talking about Patton, we're going to be talking about Greta Gerwig's Barbie in the second half of the episode. Yeah, Barbenheimer lives. Uh, The dream was kept alive. We were really happy that we were able to make that swap because that was our our original plan. And Mm -hmm. then we had to go to our plan B and then... uh, the screening came in to save the day, and uh, yeah, here we are. So happy, looking forward to this episode. Happy to be able to talk about what is basically going to be my Super Bowl for the year. So uh, we, listeners, we will be getting to Barbie in the second half of the episode. But first, we're going to turn our attention to Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which is based on the book American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. This movie tells the life story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, played by Killian Murphy, the theoretical physicist who is credited with leading the Manhattan Project to success in developing the atomic bomb. But because it's a Christopher Nolan movie, Oppenheimer goes about its purpose through intricately plotted dialogue and scenes that jump backwards and forwards in time, as Nolan carefully lays out the significance of Oppenheimer's achievement and the toll that it takes upon him afterwards. 
Nolan treats the aftermath of the bomb like a moment of metaphysical devastation, driving to a single powerful point. And Kevin, I'm curious to know if you felt the effects of that single powerful point, or if Nolan was unable to carry across the portentousness of the event. I mean, I I think this is a very successful movie. And I, to your point about this kind of uh, being a trademark Nolan film in that it's a very complexly structured uh, film, I think that it really pays dividends uh, with this story. I think the, the approach he chooses does a lot to uh, zig where a lot of biopics tend to zag. Mm-hmm. I mean, the biopic is a genre uh, that is really easy to just be formulaic, you know, starting from, you know, the beginning of a life or career and going, you know, in a linear fashion all the way to some culminating point uh, sometimes even to the very end of the figure's life. And it, f- frankly, it's just a really boring way to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really boring way and a really reductive way to attempt to plumb the depths of of anyone, let alone somebody who's as complex and po- polarizing as Oppenheimer mm-hmm. uh, was. So I think that Nolan's choice of structure works out really well here. Um, it's... A film that I feel like I need to, to see again to know whether uh, its length and some of the uh, diversions it, it takes to get to the very end um, are uh, well-woven parts of a larger tapestry or whether they're uh, more like rabbit trails. Hmm. My initial thought, though, is that it is all part of a well-woven tapestry. I think that... Um, the complexity is there to really kind of get at a quintessential part of Oppenheimer, which is that, you know, some people see him as uh, self-aggrandizing and uh, not really willing to fully reckon with the damage that his professional and his personal uh, life wrought. Um, and some people see him as, as one character puts it, a prophet. And I think Nolan, by structuring it in such a complex and sometimes mind-spinning way, kind of takes us into that force and, and leaves us there and kind of trusts the audience to find our own way out and come to our own conclusions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I liked this film quite a bit. Um, I'm pretty happy with it, but I'm curious to know uh, if you're on the same page as me or if you landed in a different place. It's a little bit like quantum mechanics, right? Because you have to examine Oppenheimer, the man, Oppenheimer with his intentions, Oppenheimer with all of his different um, actions and motivations and contradictions, very complex person. And I think Nolan manages to pull it off. I think this movie worked for me really well too, especially because he's trying to pull in a lot of that complexity. And unlike some of his previous movies, he's not loading the audience down with a ton of exposition. There's still exposition because it is a Nolan movie. And sometimes you do have to explain a little bit of quantum mechanics and a little bit of physics theory in order for the rest of the movie to make any form of sense. But I don't feel like the movie gets lost in the attempt to explain. It's more of an attempt to express. And the way that it does that is by going down those rabbit holes and those wormholes. And in so doing, I think it does a really good job of pulling out contradictory ideas about the same person and about the way that he moved through the world. And I suspect, although I'll also need to see this movie again to get a full grasp around it, because it is quite large and there's a lot going on here. But I suspect that the movie, it's structured around the twin ideas of fusion and fission, which Nolan even calls out in title cards at the very beginning of the movie. And I think I was clued into it when I started to hear twin lines being repeated throughout the film at different times. So there's a moment where Oppenheimer tells a student, you'll be all right. And the first time he does it, it's a moment of welcoming in. And then the second time he does it, it's almost a way of pushing that student out of the nest and saying, you're going to be okay out here as a man now and not just as my pupil. And 
those that push and that pull, I think, are present throughout the entire movie through those repeated lines and then also through repeated images, which take on full significance after the events that the movie portrays. So you see glimpses of something and you don't really fully know the full significance of it until much later in the film. And I felt that push and that pull, that inviting in and then that pushing out repeatedly while I was watching this movie. And I don't know, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I just, I felt floored by the emotional impact of the film. So I think I might even be a little bit more positive on it than you are. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I'm definitely positive on it like you. The I, I like the, the way that it jumps around in time. And there's kind of like two uh, separate threads uh, in this film. It, it, in that way, it kind of harkens back to Memento, mm. where Memento kind of... Uh, has this um, this structure where we begin at one end of the story at the we, we we have two strands one that starts at the be- very beginning and one that starts at the very end and they slowly converge on a middle point. Mm-hmm. Um, one is shot in black and white, one is shot in color, and then when they meet, there's a fade from black and white into color. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a similar uh, moment uh, in this case. It, it happens only at the very end where a conversation between Oppenheimer and Einstein, we at first see it in black and white. And then in the final scene, we get a different perspective on that conversation and it's in color. And that feels very much like a nice stylistic device that we haven't seen from Nolan in a long time. And I like how just like Memento, it suggests that, uh, that memory and recollection and, interpretation of certain interactions uh, are very malleable mm. and uh, can can change shift and um, they there's not really uh, sort of one objective God's eye way to see all of it mm. and it, I don't know it's interesting in that also the film feels like at some points we're seeing things very much from Oppenheimer's perspective. And then other times it's almost like we, we pull out and we kind of get a much more, for lack of a better term, a third person view of him or we're seeing him from the outside. And I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic for me in this film is that push and pull between seeing things through Oppenheimer's eyes and then seeing Oppenheimer through other people's eyes. Mm-hmm. And which one is the real Oppenheimer? Which version of reality is the quote unquote actual reality i don't think the movie answers that for us and that's why i think it's a very thorny and fascinating film yeah and i think that plays into the structure of the movie too right because there's that idea of the observation paradox which i'm not a physicist i'm not going to get it fully right but in the act of observing something you kind of fundamentally change it as well and here i think the movie is aware that it is telling a complex story about a complex man and it knows that it's not going to get everything 100% right and so Nolan's going to come at it sideways you know also similar I guess to that that theory of light where it's both a particle and a wave it's going to present two views and then you get to pick which one you prefer at any given point in time and that could shift and change throughout the course of the entire movie I don't think I fully picked up on the fact that the movie is partly from Oppenheimer's very close view and then from other people's views later on down the line. I just felt like there were shifting perspectives, but it wasn't so tightly focused in on just Oppenheimer in those moments where he's not present. I don't know. I I feel like the movie is able to shift its gaze over towards the people around him in a way that doesn't make Oppenheimer himself feel necessarily like a black hole that everything else fully revolves around, however important his actions and everything that he did actually is. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it feels very much like a piece of history a piece of written history mm-hmm. um it's it's really common uh in the study of history for uh very famous figures like say you know julius caesar mm-hmm. or to name a more recent example alexander hamilton and depending on who's doing the telling the same person can either be a conniving villain or a hero and it all just kind of depends on how certain uh events are framed whether or not you believe that um, this person was, is being sincere in the documents we have of their perspective. And in the same way, Oppenheimer, 
um, we we kind of have to decide for ourselves whether we we trust Oppenheimer's uh, professions of regret over the making of the atomic bomb, like wh- whether he was sort of, you know, very happy to uh, make such a such a device and then kind of tried out the just following orders defense later, mm-hmm. whether his professions of deep regret uh, came from a place of genuine um, uh, genuine emotion or whether it was kind of more of a calculated PR campaign because he liked being on the covers of magazines as the father of the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. Like those, those are two things that the film kind of holds up for us and you get the sense that Nolan's sympathies lie slightly with Oppenheimer rather than against him, mm-hmm. but he doesn't shy away from the fact that there are people who see Oppenheimer as somebody who sort of was only too happy to create the bomb and then cried crocodile tears about it afterwards. And that's a question that the film leaves us with. In fact, the the one of the final exchanges between Oppenheimer and another character is concerning his legacy. Um, one person tells him, she she tells him, people are going to vilify you for this afterwards. Mm-hmm. And Oppenheimer simply says, we'll see. And that's a very, it's almost like a mission statement for, for the film is that it's almost like Nolan is presenting us with this film and, and asking us, do you vilify Oppenheimer? What do you think of this man? Mm-hmm. And we'll just have to see what we, where we land once the credits roll. I think it's a real, like, I don't know if I've seen an interesting bio, a, a biopic this interesting in a while. Mm-hmm. And I really respect how Nolan subverts a lot of well-worn biopic tropes. Yeah. Um, and I respect that Nolan doesn't force us or instruct us to come down in one direction or the other, but it doesn't feel as though he's judging the audience for whatever conclusions that they might draw about the man either. And so for me, I came away feeling deeply conflicted, but in a way that made me appreciate both the film and then also the piece of history that the film was portraying both at the same time in a way that I don't think that I had fully been able to appreciate before. Part of that, I think, is Nolan's direction. Part of that is the script. I do think that the script is very good with those those paired lines that are seeded throughout the film with some ironic echoes and, in some cases, additional clarity being given by the same line being repeated. But a lot of it also comes through, I think, the performances. And I kind of want to talk about those, too. I really, really liked Killian Murphy in this role. Yeah, I'm, and I'm really happy that Killian Murphy kind of, you know, has a big leading man role to sink his teeth into i mean like nolan has used him a lot especially you know like in the batman series he's he's always the scarecrow and he's even in the second two movies he's kind of like off to the side kind of doing his own little his own little business Mm -hmm. and he's a lot of fun there but i think here nolan uses those uh eyes of his those those pale piercing eyes to really great effect um i think Murphy's performance does a great job of suggesting somebody who is capable of being very charismatic, but is also in a way remote at all times. There's there's a sense that there's always kind of some part of him that is locked away from uh, from the outside observer. And I think that sense of enigma or maybe that paradox, if you will, somebody who is charismatic and also withholding of himself um, is very much key to who Oppenheimer was and also key to why uh, different people can have such differing opinions on what his life meant and how much he is to be lauded for uh, his various uh, public stances and and contributions uh, such as they are. So I, I really like his performance a lot. Yeah, you get the sense that he doesn't even fully know why he does the things that he does either, which feels very human to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment early in the film where he acts on an impulse in a way that's going to harm somebody else and then expresses regret for it, I think, just the next day. And he's able to subvert disaster before it actually does strike. But it's a pretty near thing. And it seems as though he's so caught up in how he felt because it's, it's something that he does because he's slighted by a teacher, essentially. 
And he acts on impulse in a way that is intended to punish that teacher, but almost thoughtlessly or carelessly. And then it's it's happened and it's done and it's gone. And then the next day he goes to try to correct that mistake. And that mistake almost ends up hurting somebody else in the process whom he admires very much. And later on, somebody asks him about it. And he says, I don't know why I would have done something like that. I admired the man that I was going to try to hurt very much. And some of that, I think, comes from the man's pride and sense of pride being wounded by being corrected by his own teacher. And then some of that just feels like the opportunity was there. And so I took it. And I think that that feeds through into his agreeing to take over direction of the Manhattan Project as well. The opportunity was there and he takes it. And then the opportunity continues to present itself and he just keeps following that chain reaction of events, not knowing where it's going to fully lead and not really fully understanding what's going to happen once he has set off that initial explosion and not knowing whether or not it's going to end up meaning changing the entire world or even potentially destroying the world too and you get that sense of that weight from killian murphy's eyes in particular Mm -hmm. but also in the way that he holds his body in the way that he walks around too yeah there's an interesting tension in this movie where on the one hand there there's a scene where uh oppenheimer essentially uh, takes his his infant child and fobs them off onto a friend and says my wife and I cannot care for this kid right now. Can you just take them for a long time until, mm-hmm. you know, we get our, you know, get ourselves sorted out. And he, he says, you know, we're, we're awful selfish people for doing this. And that might be a true statement, but his friend reassures him like awful selfish people don't know that they're awful and selfish. They wouldn't say that. So on one hand, there, there's, there's a, that's a part of the film where, Oppenheimer is kind of being being extended grace in his failings. Mm -hmm. But that's also paired with a scene uh, later on in the film uh, where uh, Oppenheimer's infidelity has led to great pain, not just for uh, his wife, but also for uh, the the woman with whom he was having an affair. Mm -hmm. And uh, it makes him feel genuinely terrible. His wife very sternly tells him, you don't get to sin and then make it about your pain. Pick yourself up and keep going. Mm. And that's essentially the central tension with the uh, atomic bomb as well, uh, where it is a horrible thing. He may have felt genuinely bad about. It. Does that absolve him? Maybe not. Maybe so. It's again. It's sort of Nolan is asking us to decide where we f- fall on on that spectrum. And I think that's. It's invigorating to have a movie that respects its audience enough to not try to give them that easy answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of that sense of conflicted morality that's shot through the film, too. So as Oppenheimer is trying to recruit various physicists that he knows um, for this project, he goes to a good friend of his, Isidore Rabbi, played by David Krumholtz. Very nice to see him on the screen. Um, And Isidore responds to the job offer by saying that when you drop a bomb, you drop it on the just and the unjust alike. And that line struck me because I think it complicates the idea of not fully knowing the consequences of what you're going to do when you embark on something like the Manhattan Project. Um, Rabbi's very well aware that what they're doing is going to cost human life, not just American lives, but human life on the globe. And he's against it. And Oppenheimer is willing to forge forward for it anyway. And it's kind of unclear if it's just because of the scientific advancement or if it's because he genuinely does feel like this is the only thing that he can do in order to stop the war. And there's some talk about whether or not it's appropriate to create a bomb so big that it is going to prevent other people from wanting to drop a bomb ever again. And Oppenheimer's kind of ambitious response to that question also almost makes me want to lean into it a little bit more. And I think Nolan himself is leaning into that question throughout the entire film. And he's holding that up in tension with Oppenheimer's unwillingness to even engage with that moral question 
not really as a judgment on the man, but as another facet of this problem of this character. Well, that line is really telling, too, because it's, of course, a callback to the the line from the Bible about, um, mm-hmm. you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Yes. And in that context, it's uh, referring to how humanity is is kind of below the concerns of you know why some people suffer and why why some people don't why afflictions come seemingly without regard for who deserves them uh essentially you know why does god allow bad things to happen is is the is the sentiment that is partially addressed by that passage so in this, so that seems to suggest that nolan is suggesting that in doing this it's humanity playing with like saying it's up self up in almost a godlike position they're playing god and that's a very dangerous thing to do and some of the the very last shots of the film without giving too much away shows that bad things really happen when humankind arrogates those kinds of powers to itself Mm -hmm. there's even a, a shot of you know, that's above the clouds and we see ICBM uh, trails arise from the clouds. It's it's a celestial image, but it's also shot through with destruction, mm-hmm. uh, man-made destruction. I think that's, it's a really thorny thing. And it's something that Nolan doesn't put too fine a point on. That just and unjust line is, you know, it's it doesn't come up again. It's not underlined in any way, mm-hmm. but it's in, it's there. It's almost the pivot on which a lot of the balance of the movie kind of hangs. Um that imagery of destruction, I think, is something that haunts the film. It haunts the character of Oppenheimer, for sure. And I think a lot of what we've described about the film so far, the the scripts and the way that Nolan is, is holding up kind of an ambivalent attitude towards Oppenheimer almost feels as though we're the movie itself is is cold, and I don't think that it is at all. And I know Nolan himself has been accused of being a very cold filmmaker and a very clinical filmmaker. And here, I think he uses some moments that feel a little bit more impressionistic and designed to get you very much inside Oppenheimer's head in a way that surprised me because I don't think that I had quite seen him use that tool in his arsenal before. And he doesn't use that tool very frequently, but when he does, it's to great effect and probably even to greater effect because it's used fairly subtly. You get flashes of destruction. You get sparks flying through the air. You get... Oppenheimer envisioning the curve of um, the electrons flying around the nucleus of an atom. And those tell you what he's thinking about. But as the film continues to go, you get a little bit more of Oppenheimer's potential guilt over the bomb bleeding over into reality until it's a little bit difficult to separate what's actually happening in the world and then what's going on inside the character's head. And I don't know. I, I think that was some of the filmmaking that was the most powerful for me, largely because it's there and you don't really notice it until it's really there and it's in your face. And a lot of that has to do with the use of editing and being able to splice in those images of fire. And then every once in a while, you'll see something that looks like it's happening in the real world, but it is also very clearly just happening within Oppenheimer's head. And I think a lot of that also has to do with the way that the film is shot, just those those warm tones that Hoyt van Hoytema uses. I was thinking about Nope a little bit as well, like hmm. the, the sense of destruction and the sense of watching and somebody being able to judge you for your actions, I think, is something that's, it's not like a very strong thread between those two movies, but I do think that it's there. And I think a lot of that has to do with Hoytema's focus on the main characters that populate the the frames of these two films i I also want to really call out the the sound design in this film um it's probably the best uh sound design uh in in the nolan picture is what i would argue he uses a lot of the same uh sound people for this film as he's used in a lot of his films uh randy torres was the sound designer richard king was like kind of a a sound designer and sound editor Mm -hmm. and the way that he uses sound in a couple of pivotal moments the the trinity test Mm -hmm. um when the bomb actually goes off uh a kind of climactic scene where oppenheimer uh announces the success of the detonations over uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. Um, the the way that sound is used in those scenes is 
just indelible. Like, um, especially the when when the train test first happens, uh, you kind of expect this to be all sound and fury, but Nolan uh, films presents the initial moments of that detonation with utter silence. Not not even. Um, you know, conversation or rumblings, just utter silence and only the sound of a human breathing mm-hmm. as uh, we witness, you know, what's just been born into the world. And that's, it's remarkable. It's really great. And the way that's contrasted with the the booming sound of applause when he announces that thousands and thousands of people have died, mm-hmm. um, it it's the the sound design is overwhelming and it's cut through with um with sh- with sound clips of screams not just cheers but screams yes. and i i just it's a it's a chilling scene probably the strongest in the entire film and just i don't know i i i still th- i'm still thinking about that stuff it's it's very strong work from him and his sound team yeah that scene in particular is just a real kick in the chest um and I think that's where Nolan is really able to pull together a lot of these contrasts of the triumph and then the intense sorrow and the pride over having been able to accomplish something that nobody else was able to accomplish before. And then the extreme guilt that something has been born into the world that maybe should never have been introduced into it at all. And Nolan's able to do that largely, like you said, through the sound and then also through the use of cutting an imagery that is almost an ironic mirror. So we see two characters celebrating by kissing each other and then another two characters who are basically wrapped around each other in mourning and in grief. And it's unclear if either of those two things are actually happening within the world of the film, but it doesn't matter because that gets Oppenheimer's state of mind across to the viewer in really effective and and I thought pretty stark fashion. Yeah, I think that uh, that moments and that kind of feeling that suffuses the entire film is also very bound up in nolan's preoccupations as a whole his films are full of you know very smart or at least very capable men um who uh whose the the very things that make them exceptional also make them acutely vulnerable to uh bringing down the world around their ears Mm -hmm. or uh, make them uh, acutely vulnerable to just having giant blind spots that they would be able to see if they weren't so obsessively focused on doing a single thing or accomplishing a single goal. Um, and uh, here we get the we get that sense from Murphy's performance. I want to circle back around to talking about the performances with Robert Downey Jr. Yes. He plays a a man named Louis Strauss who uh, first meets Oppenheimer after the Manhattan Project is successful. Oppenheimer uh, joins the Atomic Energy Commission to advise the United States on what do they do with this this weapon and this power now that they have it. And uh, Strauss's perspective on Oppenheimer uh, is kind of the way it's presented over the course of the film is kind of almost a twist. So I don't want to give, I don't want to talk in too many specifics about it, Mm -hmm. but what I think is really telling about the way Strauss is presented to the audience versus how Oppenheimer is presented to the audience, specifically through Downey Jr.'s performance is really telling. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. plays it not as kind of the, the, the fast talking smarter than everyone in the room guy that we were kind of, we've, become used to from him over the past decade or so. Um, he plays him as, as a man who's very kind of, he's very focused on the small picture, I guess. Whereas Oppenheimer is kind of thinking about the the bigger picture, maybe almost to a fault. Uh, Strauss is, is kind of focused on concerns of govern government and interpersonal relationships and politics. Mm-hmm. And, the contrast between him and Oppenheimer and the effect that that has on the way Strauss sees Oppenheimer, I think is chilling in a much more subtle way. It's it's very easy to be chilled by Oppenheimer coming to terms with what he's done in creating the atomic bomb. To see the way that Strauss regards Oppenheimer for that very thing and 
what Strauss focuses on instead is also very telling and very chilling in how you know there there are obsessive geniuses who have giant blind spots and then there are much pettier people who have blind spots that are perhaps not so large but maybe even more dangerous yeah and they're also good foils for each other because oppenheimer is oppenheimer but strauss could be just about anybody like i i believe the way that he approaches the world because he's kind of a person that you know you see maybe not every day i certainly would hope not every day but he's someone that I think is a little bit more recognizable than the genius that you see in Killian Murphy's performance in particular. But yeah, I, I love Robert Downey Jr.'s work in this movie too. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing this film again. I don't know if I'm going to have a chance to see it in 70 millimeter again. I would highly recommend with caveats that if you have a chance to see this film listeners like 70 millimeter IMAX, the scale is definitely worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know that I'll be able to make it to a screening like that in the near future, but I am looking forward to seeing it again, just in any format, because there's a it's a lot of movie packed into three hours. Uh, so there, there's a lot there. Yeah, it's a lot of movie packed into three hours, and it makes good use of that time. And it also makes good use of the sense of urgency that Nolan is so good at harnessing and i don't know i i feel like i think like i said at the top of the review i need at least another viewing to fully wrap my arms around it but what i have seen and what i have been able to grasp i like very much i can't say that i enjoyed it because it is a it is a difficult piece of subject matter but it is a brilliant piece of art about that difficult subject matter so i I liked it I think brilliant is a good way to describe it. Listeners, that is our review of Oppenheimer. If you uh, do the full Barbenheimer double feature this weekend, or you're just making it all about uh, Christopher Nolan and Killian Murphy, we're interested in your thoughts. Let us know on Twitter, if you've seen this film, what you think of it. You can find us on there at Pod. You can also hit us up on Letterboxd to talk to us about it, Pod over on that platform as well. And as always, always our email inbox is always open to you you can write us an email at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com we're going to go to a barbie world in the second half of the show so maybe something a little bit lighter at least a little bit pinker shall we say stick around for that Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, helping us keep the conversation about movies going. And Sarah, I I really want to shout out a specific uh, bit of feedback that we got last week from one of our listeners over on Letterboxd. So uh, longtime listeners will notice we actually have added Letterboxd to our weekly sort of hit us up over here spiel. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Uh, Doc Scott over on Letterboxd had a really lovely uh, response to our review of Elemental. Um, Way back on episode 387, um, Doc Scott uh, had a very nice uh, reaction to it. Uh, Quoting in part, he says, I admit that I have a strong personal preference for overstuffed, beautiful messes over sleek commercial products, but I adored Elemental in a way that I haven't any Pixar movie since I don't know, maybe up. And then he goes on from there to, to tell a, a very lovely uh, personally inflected story about uh, how the story that was presented to Elemental hit him in a very uh, in a very personalized way. Um, I would encourage uh, all of our listeners to head over there and maybe engage with that comment. I, it was really lovely to see. Doc Scott, if you are listening right now, uh, we loved hearing from you and uh, I really like that you took the time to share your thoughts about Elemental, a film that maybe if we didn't like as much as you, we can at least appreciate hearing your perspective about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's lovely to hear this from listeners. And honestly, that's part of the reason why I do this sort of thing all the time anyway. It's to talk about movies and the way that they've affected us in very different ways. So thank you for that. Yeah, it was it was lovely. Thanks so much, Doc Scott. But of course, we also hear from listeners over on Twitter. Uh, Sarah, you are sort of the Twitter master these days. So what's going on over in those quarters? <laughs> I am the master of Twitter. That's a dangerous title to have. <laughs> so over on Twitter, we got a response from Zach Malm, um, 
about last week's episode um, on the topic of Inception borrowing, and he uses this in scare quotes, from <laughs> Paprika and how that impacts our appreciation of both. I happened to see Paprika in Seattle at SIF, that's the Seattle International Film Festival, and it blew my mind. When I saw Inception, the inspiration was too obvious and I just couldn't get into it. And then he followed up with another piece of um, writing about people borrowing from Satoshi Kon's work, specifically Darren Aronofsky in Requiem for a Dream, borrowing from very liberally from Perfect Blue. Um, so Zach, thank you for shouting out um, with that. Thank you for thank you for the feedback on that front too. Yeah, and that's a good reminder to me to check out more of Satoshi Kon's work. I've I've not seen any of his films other than Paprika, so. Definitely a blind spot that I need to rectify. Something for both of us to watch, potentially, because I haven't seen any other Satoshi Kon movies either. Definitely. So speaking of movies that have come out this week, in keeping with our topic and Barbenheimer, um, I also asked over on Twitter, which movie are you interested in watching this weekend? Oppenheimer, Barbie, both or neither. So ran a Twitter poll, and we heard back from our listeners. 10% said neither, and I would love to hear from those people because I'm curious to know what you're interested in instead. 16% um, said Barbie, 32% said both, and then a whopping 42% of our listeners who responded to this poll said that they were going to be seeing Oppenheimer. So that's a pretty big vote in favor of the movie that we just reviewed. And I really mm -hmm. hope that we did it justice. And I would love to hear from all of those folks who do go out and see Oppenheimer, what they thought of the movie too. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who are doing the Barbenheimer double feature as we did, uh, I am kind of curious to know what order you chose to watch them in. Is it, is it Oppenheimer first, then Barbie? Do you, or do you want to go light and then dark? Like which, which one would, would you recommend Sarah? I mean, having seen both of them, I would go Barbie and then Oppenheimer probably because I'm interested in thinking about bummers a little bit more than I am in thinking about lighthearted storytelling, but that's just a personal preference. Where do you land on it? Yeah, I think Barbie then Oppenheimer might be the way to go. Just, you know, you, 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 if you're thinking about heavy things while Barbie is going on, I'm, I I feel like that you're you're just not going to be in the right mind space to to enjoy it as much as you was if you go in fresh to it and then let yourself be you know brought, brought down. down a little bit uh, <laughs> yeah. or not brought down but at least like there's some weighty stuff in Oppenheimer that you might want to ruminate on a little bit before jumping straight into the Fantasia of Barbie. Yeah. Oppenheimer is something that's worth pondering, I think. So I'm, I'm in agreement with you there. Well, that's that's our two cents listeners. But if you saw them in the opposite order, those of you who are doing the double feature, let us know your experience as well. Interested to know what that was like. And now we're on to the Barb half of Barbenheimer with this second segment. This is typically the part of the show where we, you know, do the watch list segments, uh, but we just had to be plugged into the zeitgeist, I feel like. We had to, you know, do both. Barbenheimer was a cultural event of extraordinary significance, and we felt that we couldn't do it justice if we only covered half of it. Truly, we are the Barbenheimer generation listeners, but well, that's as weighty as I'm going to get in this part of the show because we are going to be talking about Barbie. Margot Robbie stars as the iconic doll in this film. She opens the film as a citizen of the candy-colored utopia of Barbie land, spending carefree days flitting from one amusement to the next, dishing out and receiving mutual appreciation from the other Barbies, and fielding the devotion of the Kens. Specifically, Beach Ken, played with childlike gusto by Ryan Gosling. But when certain disquieting elements creep into Barbie's perfect life, thoughts of death, flat feet, cellulite, she has to embark on an expedition into our world, the real world, to find the person who's been playing with her this whole time and figure out why the, this darkness has come into her slash their existence. So one thing that I'm really interested about this film in general and your reaction in specific, Sarah, is it is a movie about a doll. It's a movie about Mattel's intellectual property. Um, and to that end, it does have unavoidable elements of of PR, at least. Like it's it's definitely 
to a certain extent promoting Barbie as a brand. But what I am interested in talking about, at least here at the beginning, is Greta Gerwig's working within those strictures. So to kick us off, I really want to know, do you think Greta Gerwig is successful at taking those boundaries that she's playing in and making something interesting out of it? Making something interesting, yes. Making something that's ultimately successful probably not oh okay so i had quite a lot of fun watching this movie i i had a few barbie dolls when i was growing up but it wasn't something that i was particularly preoccupied with and yet there are details here that are drawn out of clear love and affection for the toy not so much always something that feels like it's you know PR or a commercial for Barbie dolls, although it does kind of get into that territory on occasion. There are moments where the script calls out the fact that everybody who played with Barbie dolls had a weird Barbie that had been played with a little bit too hard, had been given a haircut and some crayon makeup and then abandoned under a bed, essentially. And the movie is very knowing in a lot of those details and specific about a lot of those details without calling, I think, too much attention to them. It's just, oh, there's a weird Barbie who's always doing the splits because that's the only position that she can exist in anymore. I think within the strictures of the plot, Gerwig is trying to tell a story that has to do with the difficult position that women are asked to exist in, in a world that is not necessarily built for them. And the culture shock that our titular Barbie doll encounters when she is suddenly thrust into the real world. And I think with regards to that balancing act, the movie is probably a little bit too heavy-handed and a little bit too self-congratulatory about the role that Barbie dolls were intended to play within the development of Girls Into Women. And I think it's just a little bit too neatly tied up into a bow about how to resolve some of those issues. And some of that comes from the fact that this is essentially a movie about dolls for children, and I don't think that we're going to get anything particularly illuminating here. So while I have some issues with the general structure of the movie, I did still have a lot of fun with the details and the candy coating and Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling's performances in particular. But Kevin, I'm curious to know, did this movie work for you? Let us all now praise the names of Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling because they are wonderful in this film. And I think they're basically what saves it mm. kind of from itself almost. I'm with you in that this movie is kind of a hot mess in a lot of ways, um, mostly in the screenplay. I think Gerwig and her screenwriting partner, Noah Bombach are faced with a tough task. Like they have to find a way to tell a story about Barbie that is not just blatant promotion for the brand. Um, you know, Barbie isn't, uh, at, you know, that she's not a character so much as just a, an idea, I mm -hmm. guess, as Barbie herself mentions at one point in, in this film. Um, so they're faced with the problem of how do you make a narrative and a film out of that? And their solution to that question is to kind of, really go hard into the meta uh, aspect of it. And I think that that kind of, it's too, it, it can, it ends up biting them. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I think this movie is about itself to an almost oppressive extent. Like the, hmm. it's not just about uh, a story about Barbie and encountering a problem that she has to overcome. It's kind of a, a story about, you know, what Barbie represents, um, what Mattel represents, what women, you know, kind of the, the plight of, of women under the patriarchy, all these things. And I think it's, it's almost, it feels to me almost as if there's a slight shame-faced uh, air to it, as if they say, we all know it's kind of silly that we're making a Barbie movie, so we're kind of going to make it not just about Barbie as a character, but kind of Barbie as an idea, and really lean hard into that. And I think... It, it kind of becomes exhausting when it leans hard into kind of a feminist analysis of what Barbie represents and uh, 
what women have to deal with under the patriarchy. It's much more successful, I think, when we are just enjoying Robbie and Gosling's performances and when they're just kind of almost being just just in watching them sort of exist in their world and then our world. Both of those are kind of enjoyable as just as kind of like light, fluffy comedy. When the film like actually tries to be about something, <laughs> I think that's really, I, I think the angle it took to be about that thing is just, I, it's, it's not, like you said, it's not illuminating. And I wouldn't fault it for that, except I think it kind of wants to be illuminating. And that's a problem for me. Yeah, the movie's going for illuminating and it ends up with something that's a little bit closer to Feminism 101 mm-hmm. in a way where I felt like I was watching the film and I was saying, tell me something that I don't actually already know. And on the one hand, it's kind of nice to have a movie acknowledge the place of Barbie in the world as both something that was intended to be a positive thing for girls to grow up with and then also something that is ended up probably being a net negative um, in that it is selling some pretty impossible ideals to children. And at the same time, the movie tries to have its cake and eat it too, in that it's trying to do both of these things at once. And I don't know that it fully manages to interrogate that tension beyond having, I don't know, scenes where it's funny that there's a Barbie doll that's come to life and is running amok in Malibu in actual California. And those moments work best, like you said, when it's Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling sort of playing off each other and taking the idea of what if a Barbie doll came to life to its absolute extreme and leaving the big existential questions just completely out of it. When when it's essentially a a fish out of water comedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Especially, I think, and I think Margot Robbie's performance is very, very good here. Yes. But... Gosling was the comedic standout for me because he's taking that fish out of water extreme in two different dimensions. First as a Ken who's living in Barbie land. So he's kind of out of place and feels a little bit like he doesn't fully belong because he's always a side character and always has been. And then you take that and then you put that into the real world and you show this character that there is a world in which Maybe men could possibly rule. And then you take that to its logical extreme and allow this character to suddenly discover that maybe he also has power and agency to make a change for better or maybe for worse. And those sequences, I thought, were very funny, specifically because Gosling really leans into the physical comedy of his character and then also just the committedness of the role and what the script is asking him to do. Yeah, Gosling is a lot of fun. And he basically, he does kind of, his performance really walks a tightrope where he's not exactly like a puppy dog or a, or a little boy. Like, he's not a child. He's not, he's not kind of just a brainless himbo. He's He's got elements of that in the performance, but... He does feel like a plausible person, if I could say that, mm-hmm. about a Ken doll come to life. Like he does, it, it feels like a performance that is very, very broad and very, very funny, but also is not just him going for, reaching for easy jokes about how how dumb Ken is or how Ken is just, you know, a six pack and nothing else. You know, like that's... He, he does enough to really make you kind of understand how Ken can be both a very simple uh, person, but also that doesn't diminish the fact that uh, even somebody exce- as exceedingly simple as him, nobody likes to be stripped of their agency. And that's kind of what the central tension is in Barbie, is that Barbie is kind of supposed to represent this very aspirational ideal, physical beauty, um, all sorts of um, career successes, you know, kind of the the dream, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how she represents those things and how that can be both a very, can be seen as kind of a liberating thing, like girls can be anything they want to be, but also a very, very, oppressive in its own way like if you aren't these things or you don't want these things then you are somehow failing or lesser than 
um, and there's not really a choice for you. Mm-hmm. And that kind of lack of agency is something that Barbie herself experiences when she, you know, enters the real world patriarchy and, and discovers that, you know, the, the president isn't President Barbie. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the CEO of Mattel is, and the entire board of directors are men. Um, that her experiencing that is interesting. I feel like the film airs by making it more about Barbie's relationship with the human uh, people who have played with her uh, and not about kind of more focused on her and Ken and kind of what's going on between them hmm. and in and within them. Yeah. And and it's it seems like a missed opportunity to me. Yeah, it kind of does. It's funny that we were talking about how great the paradoxes of Oppenheimer were because I feel like at the heart of Barbie there is a little bit of a paradox that doesn't quite fully manage to mesh and maybe it's because Barbie isn't actually about quantum uh, mechanics or anything. <laughs> um but it was kind of summed up for me in one of the needle drops in this movie, of which there are many, and I think the soundtrack is pretty solid, but the movie keeps returning to an Indigo Girls song, specifically Closer to Fine, where um, the characters are singing about how, like, the less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I'm going to be to being okay. And here, I think where the movie really truly airs is that it attempts to define that definitive and then sort of force Barbie's existential crisis into a box that could be defined by one particular like societal ill when it's probably a whole host of other things that are going on all at once. It's It gets back at my, my beef with the idea of you can't just have a movie hinging on just one single metaphor that makes it really easy to sum up the entire story because that's also reducing the whole of the human experience to just one problem. And I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. I mean, charitably, you could argue that that is intentional on Gerwig's part. There's uh, kind of the, the last act of the movie is, is occupied with um, the, the person who played with Barbie as, as a girl um, is talking about how, uh, she kind of wants Barbie not to be aspirational, but just sort of be representational hmm. of, you know, she kind of just wants Barbie to be an ordinary person. Like it, she, the designs that she comes up with, uh, sorry, that's, I don't want to spoil anything. <clears throat> Let me back up. <clears throat> the way that uh, she plays a part in the, Con, in, in the climactic conflict of the film is to sort of help express the frustration of a lot of women where there's this constant feeling of not being enough. Like they, there's, they have to be everything. They have to be simultaneously uh, a certain way. And then the polar opposite of, of that way and how that, that those warring demands on, uh, on them to, to kind of be thought of as good enough mm-hmm. is is destructive and draining. Um, and it's essentially a Pinocchio story. She doesn't she wants to be a person. She doesn't just want to be an idea because uh, Barbie herself is under a lot of pressure as to, you know, is she a representation of uh, sort of fascist capitalism, as one character says? Is she a representation of aspirational feminist uh, ideals? Is she a representation of men just wanting a desirable woman to sell to little girls to teach them to be that woman? Mm -hmm. That's a lot of pressure uh, and a lot of uh, symbolism to just force onto a single child's toy. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of pressure on her. So you could argue that the fact that this film is kind of also trying to be lots of things at once is sort of uh, an embodiment of that tension as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it fully works. <laughs> um, and I think that it's partly because it goes didactic in sort of having a lot of speechifying about what it means to be a woman. And it might have been better served by sort of containing all of those tensions in storytelling and character 
rather than didacticism. Yeah, and then part of it is also just, I don't know how much I buy a critique of Mattel that was produced and endorsed essentially by Mattel. So you get that tension of Mattel also wanting to have it both ways, where there is this recognition of this is an iconic child's toy that has a lot of hopes and dreams and also um, resentment kind of wrapped up in it, in its cultural footprint. And then what do we do with that? And I guess the answer to that question is you hand that doll over to Greta Gerwig and you tell her to try to tell a good story about it. And for the most part, I don't think that the overall overarching story works, but enough of those details and the way that that story is told were enough to keep me, you know, thoroughly entertained, which I guess is all that you can really say that a child's toy is supposed to be able to do. <laughs> um, and that sounds dismissive. I did have a lot of fun with this movie, especially because of the strength of those performances and the occasional mentions of something that I recognized from my childhood that I had completely forgotten, like Weird Barbie constantly doing the splits. And then very occasionally there's a moment of not quite transcendence, but getting pretty close to that. There's a quiet moment around the middle of the film where Barbie stops and just takes a moment to think and take a few breaths and looks around at the park that she's at. And she sees essentially the whole of human experience, a couple breaking up, another couple walking together very happily, um, various people just going about their lives and completely unaware of her. And she tears up and she has that Pinocchio moment of I'm, I'm crying and I don't fully understand why or what I'm doing with it. And I don't think the movie manages to push that moment quite over the edge into full on transcendence, but it just brushes up against it for just a moment. And that alone kind of gave me a little bit of hope that maybe there's a little bit more there there. And I'm, I'm curious to know if that moment worked for you too. I, I liked that moment. I liked a similar moment at the very end of the film. Um, and I know that we might have a differing of opinion on this based on our conversation after the screening. I'm curious to know, ha you know, having a, you know, some time to, to marinate on it. Um, have you come around on, on that moment or not? I have not. Because I think, again, that moment that we're talking about and sort of dancing around is one that does attempt to distill the whole of the human experience up into a single emotion instead of the complexity that it actually is. And I think it's a little bit disingenuous to have a character express a desire to be and feel very human and then only get one dimension of that experience. Mm. So that's that's where I landed on that. It yeah. kind of left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. Oh, yeah. See, I, I liked that moment. And I, and the reason I did is it felt like it felt like it was the the one of the only parts of the film where I'm like, OK, this is like I'm actually getting Greta Gerwig. Like Greta Gerwig is going to give us cinema now. <laughs> like it's it is, uh, the moment we're talking about. It, it's a montage. Um, and it's it's kind of an epiphanic moment for Barbie. She she has um, kind of a a revelatory experience shall we say mm -hmm. and um even though you're right that it is sort of it does attempt to distill all of human experience into uh into a single montage and the bulk of those uh of the montage kind of emphasizes sort of positive emotions good feels i guess if, if you will mm -hmm. um i guess i would argue that it's not trying to distill all of human experience into that montage so much as trying to suggest um that there's a certain beauty to being human that simply being an idea or a product as barbie is can't quite touch mm. um i liked i, I do think that it's you could argue that it's a little bit easy and two-dimensional. I would argue that it's actually Greta Gerwig leveling her cinematic powers to actually give us something real rather than kind of this faux uh, kind of The Simpsons is making fun of Fox even as it's on Fox kind of hmm. satire that I felt like a lot of the rest of the film fell into where, yes, it's kind of poking fun at Mattel, but it's doing it in a very, in, in a way that feels very safe. Mm -hmm. Like it, it feels mm -hmm. like, a Mattel suit would approve it because it shows that we can laugh at ourselves a little bit, which is a, a very good way to defang satire. 
And um, I feel like the moments like the one on the park bench that you mentioned or that that montage towards the end kind of get at what I wanted Barbie to be, where it was much more focused on on Barbie herself as a character rather than Barbie as an idea and what she represents and kind of how do we satirize her place in the culture as her cultural footprint, I guess, to borrow another one of your phrases. Yeah, that's a lot to put on the shoulders of a 12 inch tall doll, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think the movie fully manages to shoulder that burden in a way that was particularly satisfying, even though, it, I don't know, it kind of tasted sweet. I, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it does go down easy, again, thanks to Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. I cannot stress enough how good they are in this film mm-hmm. and how, you know, I have a lot of problems with the film. It is kind of a mess, but they do make it go down really easy. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Let us know your thoughts on on this film. It does seem to be pretty divisive already on the, the reviews that I've read so far. So maybe it's as divisive among our listeners as well. There's only one way to find out, and that's if you let us know on Twitter, Letterboxd, or via email. We're definitely curious to know how this hits you. Sarah, next week we are going to be returning almost to business as normal. We're not going to have another watch list pick, but we are going to be sharing a Patreon pick. Ron Sturry has written in, he is having us watch Colin Berea's The Quiet Girl from last year. It's a film that I've, I've heard good things about, but I just hadn't had a chance to catch up with at the, you know, award season crunch. Looking forward to catching that up at, at Ron's uh, Patreon-funded uh, insistence next week. Yeah, thank you for picking this one, Ron, because it's a movie that I had my eye on at the end of last year, and then it came and went from movie theaters so, so quickly that I just didn't get the chance to catch up with it. Um, I believe it was nominated for Best International Feature at the Oscars. So listeners, if you're interested in catching up with something that was on award season radar but didn't quite manage to um, have a chance up against All Quiet on the Western Front. We're going to be watching The Quiet Girl instead. So Yeah, that is uh, streaming on Hulu if you're subscribed to Hulu. It's also available to, on demand elsewhere, such as you know, Amazon. So there's ways to watch along if you wish. We're going to be pairing that with another foreign film, Christian Petzold's A Fire. Yes. Um, which, uh, looking forward to that one as well. I've liked Petzold's previous films quite a bit so looking forward to seeing if he wows me with a fire this time as well yep same here yeah so that'll be coming up next week but that'll do it for this week and barbenheimer thank you so much listeners for joining us seeing and believing is brought to you of course by the christ and pop culture podcast network our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.